Morning, everybody. It's like really heavy this way. Like it's tilted. Uh, the student section is, uh, y'all are repping, man. Welcome back, y'all. Um, uh, so I, I, I know a number of you know this, uh, but in case anybody has been like away for a while, we have two more Sundays after this doing this exact thing that we're doing right now. Uh, in three Sundays, September the 20th, we are going to move this into homes. And so there's a number of folks who are hosting and who, uh, who are going to be uh, inviting folks this week. If you, by next Sunday, do not know where you're going to participate in this gathering on September 20th, would you please let me know? Uh, you can do it at home by yourself if you want. That's fine. But if we, we really, if you're comfortable with doing so, we would love it if you would participate in a group of people. So uh, if you don't get an invite or you're not really sure where you're going to go by next Sunday, please let me know. Uh, and we're going to make sure you get connected in some way or another. Uh, and we're going to do this through the winter. So I think it's going to be a really exciting thing. I think, you know, I've heard some really cool stories about what people are going to do, uh, making breakfast for people and uh, inviting neighbors and friends. So this is going to be a really cool, uh, cool thing. So that's September 20th. So if you show up here on September 20th, you will be by yourself. The beautiful thing is you could just flip it up on your phone, but you will be by yourself. Just want to put that out there. Uh, one other thing I want to highlight is I want to put an underscore under faith walking. So uh, Evan talked about it. September 4th and 5th, you can go to our website, vineyardaltuna.org, under register for events. And it says faith walking. And it'll take you to a link. It's put on by the Mile High Vineyard in Denver. Um, and it'll happen over Zoom. I know. Listen, I get it. Everybody's tired of Zoom. But trust me. Faith walking is worth enduring a little bit more Zoom for. I promise you, you will get clarity on why you live the life the way that you do, why you do things the way that you, why you show up in rooms the way that you do. And you will be, be able and begin to be able to uh, manage your anxiety in places where you have lots of anxiety. The whole goal being that you could manage your anxiety in sharing faith with people who don't believe. So uh, it's, a, it's a great thing. I think you should do it. I think that's all the things that I want to highlight. Um, we've added a piece of furniture. We, we have this. It's not for sale, but we've added a piece of furniture. There, there's, a, there's a giant horse trough. What you don't know is that the horses will be by later uh, to drink the water. Uh, that's not actually true. Today is a special day. Today we're celebrating baptism and, uh, and it's one of my most favorite things ever to do. Have you ever, like, been in a space where you feel like, I kind of need a do-over? Anybody ever feel that way? Like, I mean, when I would play golf, I haven't played golf in a while now, um, but when I would play golf, about, I don't know, every three or four holes, you know, you step up and you tee off, and if you hit like I do, you go, okay, I'm going to need to take a mulligan. I'm going to need to try that again because the ball is on the highway or it's in the water or, you know, maybe my club is in the water. And we, you know, but I, I think a lot of times, you know, I need, a, I need a do-over. And I bet there's a lot of us that when we think about things in our lives, we would go, 
man, if I could just have a do-over. Anybody have that? Like, there's things about your life that you're like, man, you know, it keeps you up at night. There are thoughts you have, and it just sort of like grips you. It's like, man, I wish I could have done that differently. But what if we lived a whole life that we got to a place where we were like, man, I really need a do-over at life. Have you ever been in that place? I think for people who follow Jesus, we can most of us, if not all of us, remember being in that place where we said, I wish I could do this over. I wish there was a way that I could make it all right again. Today we're going to look at Romans chapter 6, and if you have a Bible, you can turn there. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, if you have a phone, they have, the Bible is in digital format now. Um, you can find it on your phone. Um, but turn to Romans chapter 6, and while you're doing that, um, I want to like clear up some things and maybe give you a little bit of context for Romans chapter 6. Uh, so Romans is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Rome. This is a letter written to Christians. And it's a really weird thing to start reading a letter right in the middle of it. Chapter 6 is like almost halfway through. And that's a really weird thing to do. How many of you do that? You get a letter and you just say, I'm going to flip to page 2. I'm just going to start right there. Everybody's laughing because nobody does that. And yet we, we do that in the church, don't we? Anyway, that's a side note. We could go down that rabbit hole for a long time. Um, but basically, I want to give you a little bit of context as to what has happened leading up to chapter 6. Paul explains at the beginning of the letter that everyone in the human race is condemned in sin. That there's not one righteous person in the world. Everyone's guilty and condemned and deserving of death. This is Paul's point. Starts the letter that way. That's a nice way to start a letter. Hey, everybody in the Roman church, you all are sinners. So am I. I don't think that's, a, you know, most people don't want to hear that. But through the death of Jesus, what Paul says is a way has been made for humanity to be justified. That's a nice word to say, be set right before God. That there's been a way made through faith in Jesus. By faith in Jesus, humanity can be redeemed. That's another biblical word. Redeemed means to be bought back. It's a, it's a word that would have been used of slaves, that you would redeem a slave by buying them out of slavery. And what, what the Bible says and what Paul says is that we were in slavery to sin, and Jesus, by faith in Jesus, we have been bought out of slavery to sin. And it's not that, you know, we can even do anything. We're stuck. That every last one of us has been stuck in sin, that there's no way out, that we can't do enough good works to make ourselves right. There's no moral practice that can set you free from sin. There's no, no amount of effort, no amount of things you can do. You know, you just can't, like, how many of you have ever, if you're married, guys, <laughs> this is usually guys, uh, if you're married, you do something that really upsets your wife, and you're like, well, maybe if I just buy her flowers, if I just buy her, let me just buy her some chocolate, and it all will be made well, right? Does that ever work? Anybody, does that ever work if you're married? Nobody. Okay, cool. <laughs> it doesn't work, right? This is the same, I mean, it's a, not exactly the same, but it's a, it's a picture of what, what Paul is saying, that we have, because of sinfulness, we have offended God, and we can't buy him enough flowers for him to be happy to, to restore the relationship. 
but that by the, by the death of Jesus, a way has been made. So we couldn't fix the relationship. God himself fixed the relationship. He came and took on our sin and died in our place. That the relationship could be restored. That guilt could be lifted off of us. That we could be set right with God. Friends, this is the Christian message. Like, we say a whole lot of things as the church, don't we? We say a whole lot of things. But the essence of the message of the gospel is that you can be made right with God. You ha- the, the penalty has been paid by Jesus for you to have a relationship with God. That's the message. That no matter where you've been, no matter how much you've done, how much you've left undone, how horrible you've been in relationships, that God has made a way to draw you close to himself. That's the message. This is good news. So when Paul gets to chapter 5, he expands on how this works. And what he says is, Adam sinned. For those of you who don't know, Adam is like the first man. Adam sinned. We've all been born into a world of sin, that all of us have inherited this brokenness, that when you were born, you were born right into a world of sin. And since that time, we've lived in a world of sin and death and destruction. And I don't think you have to look very far, do you, to see the effects of that, right? I mean, look at what's going on in Wisconsin. I mean, look at what's going on all around the world with a pandemic. Is there any question, does anybody not believe that the world is a mess. So when Paul gets to chapter 5, he says, you are born in Adam, you are born into sin, that the world for you is just not going to go very well. But what he says is, because of the great gift of Jesus, grace has entered into the world, And it has come in sufficient supply for all the sinfulness of the world. That Jesus has supplied grace to cover all of the brokenness. Wherever sinfulness increased, grace increased all the more. This is what Paul says. Wherever the the level of sin goes up, there's more grace than that. That this is what it is to be in Christ. And where Paul leaves it at the end of chapter 5, we're tempted to this crazy conclusion, right? If you're tracking with me, If sin increases, grace in Christ is more. The logical conclusion is, well, let's get more grace into the world and just let's sin a whole lot more. If there's always going to be more grace, if that's what the, the message is, well, let's just sin a whole lot more and that grace will enter into the world. And isn't that the logical thought? If we want more grace in the world, that's what should happen. But here's what Paul does. Here's here's what he says. We get to chapter six. That's the temptation of thought at the end of chapter 5. You would go, well, okay, let's sin all the more. But here's what he says, chapter 6, verse 1. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? That's the logical conclusion. He says, by no means. This is like super emphatic. May it never, ever be. We are those who have died to sin. Died? What? We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself as a, to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. Paul says that the way faith works is that you identify completely with Christ. And what that means, you hear, have you ever heard the term born again? You need to be born again. You guys have heard that term. What that means is that you were born into the line of Adam and so therefore inherited sin and death and destruction. But now you need to be born again into Christ and so then inherit all that Christ has to offer. Nobody's born a Christian. You may have grown up in a family that went to church. You may have gone to church a really long time, but nobody is born a Christian. You are born into Adam. You are born into sin. You are born into death and destruction. That's what natural birth gets you. But Jesus offers you new birth, that you can be born again into his life. And what that means is that we identify completely with Jesus. Not just like, oh, he, he makes me happy and, you know, the whole, the whole, you guys have heard this, like, Jesus is just so lovely and he's, and, and those things are all true. Don't mishear me. Those things are all true. But what Paul says is, you are born again into his death. You are born again into his death. To inherit the works of Christ, you are born into his death. And with this new birth comes justification and redemption. You identify completely with Christ. Completely. There's two things that I want you to understand today that this means. There's two things. Number one, this means you died. If you are a follower of Jesus, you died. I don't know if you've ever thought about how weird baptism is. Have you ever thought about how weird this is? How many of you belong to clubs and other social structures, right? How many of you, said, when you signed up for the club, they said, okay, we're going to put you in water and hold you down, right? Usually they want you to like sign a little card, more importantly, write them a check, Maybe you take an oath of the club, right? 
Have you ever thought about how weird this is? Like, this is what we're getting ready to do. We're going to put somebody in this water. We're going to lower them below the water. And then we're going to bring them back up and then hand them a towel. Think about how weird that is. Have you ever thought about that? It's a really, really, really weird thing we do. But when you surrender your life to Jesus, his command is that you be baptized. That it's not just joining a club. It's that you be baptized. I'm pretty convinced that most people are not very clear on what what it is that we're doing here. Like, I would say that most people, when you walk out in society and you talk about baptism, like Dakota, when you leave this place and you're going to talk about your baptism to other people, they're going to be like, you did what? You got in a horse trough. (laughs) Keep it classy, Vineyard, right? You got in a horse trough and they put you underwater. Why? I'm convinced most people don't actually get it. And I know there are many, many people who have confessed faith in Jesus or prayed some kind of prayer, but have said, I see no reason to do this. There's a lot of people that are that. that. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's where you are today. You're like, I have surrendered my life to Jesus, but this is just, I don't get it. It's too weird. doesn't make any sense. Probably don't need to do it. Well, the most important reason to get baptized is to be obedient to your Savior, Jesus. (laughs) We didn't make this up. It's not like Derek was like, hey, you know, it would be a really cool thing to do. Let's just get a horse trough and put people in the water. Jesus said to do this. Not the horse trough part. You can't find that in Scripture. But Jesus said to do this. If you surrender your life to Jesus... Being baptized is obedience to your Savior. Here's the thing. Disobedience to Jesus, it's not exactly a kingdom value. You can't find that anywhere in Scripture where God's like, well, this is the place where you don't listen to Jesus. So being baptized is is an obedience thing. But beyond that, there's a real spiritual significance. There's something we're actually doing here that we actually believe happens when we baptize people. It's part of identifying completely with Christ. Paul says that when you are baptized, you are identifying with the death of Christ. Here's the symbolism. Here's the symbolic thing that happens. When we put you in this water and lower you below the water, what we're saying is you are dead. That everything that happened in your entire life before now, you count yourself dead to. You're dead. All of my stupid decisions, all of my mistakes, the one-night stands, the lies, the drug abuse, the addictions, the broken relationships, the ways that I take advantage of people, even the good things, my good ideas, all the great ideas that I have, the ways I've marketed myself, my great will, all of these things are dead. That's why you go completely under the water. Nothing stays out. You can't hold out your Facebook profile. You can't say, well, you know, Jesus, you can have all of this. I'm going to surrender all this to you except for my wallet and my, uh, you know, my book collection is pretty, pretty important and my, you know, my insect collection. I'm going to keep that. No, everything goes under the water. I heard a story about a guy who, when he went to get baptized, he dressed up in a suit with really nice shoes and, and the guy who was baptizing was like, why did you wear such nice clothes to get baptized? 
And he said, I figure this is the way I live my entire life. And if nothing gets held out of the water, I'm going to put my whole life under the water. That's a guy who gets it. I'm a businessman that makes a lot of money. I'm going to, I'm going to go underwater as the guy that I was. Everything goes under the water. And because you died, Paul says, you are no longer a slave to sin. You now no longer live a life that pursues sinful desires. That's the first thing that it means. To identify completely with Christ means you are dead. You're dead. We should make this into a coffin. It might be a little bit more appropriate. You are dead. If you don't get that, you'll miss something important. The second thing that it means is that you have been raised to new life. When you come up out of the water, symbolically, you are identifying with the resurrection of Jesus, that you are now part of the new creation. Isn't that good news? That you are a new creation. You're born again, but now you're born into Christ. But this isn't simply like a clearing of the browser history of your life. It's something different than that. You don't, go, you don't just go, well, I cleared that out, and so now I can go on and keep doing what I've been doing. I just sort of cleared out the backlog of all the guilt that I was carrying, but now I keep on living the life the way I want to live. That's not what happens. Paul says that when you died, you were set free from sin so that in your new life, you live a life for Christ. That the life you now live is devoted to Jesus, that you are born again into the life of Jesus. When you identify yourself fully with Christ, what that means is that you live a life that pursues God's desire for your life. When you died, you took your hands off the steering wheel and you handed them to Jesus. When you were raised to new life, Jesus drives the car now. That's what this offer is, is that you will live a life that is marked by the direction and the leadership of Jesus it's one of the functions of the Holy Spirit living inside of those who trust Jesus. He speaks to you about what God desires. That if we live a life that's in step with the Spirit, what we're saying is, God, what do you want me to do when I put my foot down now? Okay, God, what do you want me to do when I put my foot down now? That every step we take is a step directed by God. That's what it is. You died, you're raised to new life with Christ. And it's directed by Christ. So Paul says, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let me finish by addressing the, the obvious question that this raises. Anybody who's been a follower of Jesus for any amount of time knows where this is going. Does surrendering my life to Jesus and being baptized mean that I'll never sin again? Any perfect people? Anybody perfect? Let the record show for those at home. Nobody's got their hand up. Paul says, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Because you died and were raised again to life with Christ, you have a new master. You were a slave to sin, now you are a slave to Jesus. And it's the life that you've never knew you always wanted. 
You've changed masters. You used to serve sin. Now you serve Jesus. Paul says your job is to be responsive to your master, Jesus. This means that you intentionally pursue things that Jesus wants you to do. That like this is an actual compulsion of the heart is that I actually want to do what Jesus says. I actually want to try to please my master. And it means that when you slip into sin, you take it to him as the one who can fix it. Just because you've surrendered your life to Jesus and are baptized doesn't mean that you live a perfect life. But what does that look like practically? When you first surrender your life to Jesus, for those of you, you can think back to when you surrendered your life to Jesus, you didn't probably look too much like him, right? I know I didn't. That, that when we first surrender our life to Jesus, there's all this mess and there's all these patterns that you live in and you know, you got so many friends that really don't help you live a life that's following Jesus. And it just comes really natural for you to do things that don't please Jesus, right? That's, that's what it looks like to be someone who comes to know Jesus. And as you try to begin to live the life that pleases Jesus, the Holy Spirit begins to make you aware that, man, the thing that you're striving for, you're not, it's not there. It's not real. It's not true yet. And when you discover your parts of your life that don't please Jesus, instead of hiding them from Jesus, right? This is what we do, right? If something goes wrong, if I do something wrong, what's the first thought? Well, I don't want to go to church. I don't want to be around anybody that's like, I certainly don't want to pray because, you know, I, I just know that I'm a hypocrite and, and I separate myself. But here's the thing. If you're a follower of Jesus, when you stumble, you turn back to your father and you say, God, help. You don't run from your father. You turn for help. This is what it practically looks like, is that you turn back to him. You don't hide it. You don't just decide, well, this is just who I am. You go to Jesus as the one who can fix it. And then together with Jesus, you do this thing that, that, that Christians call repentance. It's a really fancy word that says, I'm going to turn around and walk a different direction. I was walking this way. Jesus says, hey, we're going that way. I turn around, and then I go that way. That's repentance. I confess to Jesus the way that I've fallen short, and I say, you know the better way. I'm just going to go that way. That's repentance. Repentance is not feeling really bad and beating yourself up for days until you think that you have earned forgiveness. That's not how it works. Forgiveness is provided. It's a free gift of God's grace. Repentance is saying, you know, I, I used to go to that place on the internet, and God has convicted me of that. I'm never going there again. I'm going to turn around. I'm going to walk away. I used to walk down. I used to be friends with these guys that, that they sold me the, you know, things that made me feel really good, but turns out that's not God's best for my life, and so I'm going to turn around and walk away. I used to have friends that led me down the wrong path, and God said, that's not my best for you. And so I turn around and I walk the other way. This is repentance. Functionally, this is what it looks like for a follower of Jesus. Until Jesus returns and makes all things new again, this process never ends. Just about the time, any of you probably that's been doing this for a while, you can testify to this. Just about the time you think you got it figured out, God goes, great, I'm glad we dealt with those surface things. Now let's talk about your motivations. 
Let's get, why don't you get my motivations for how you do things? Oh, I didn't know that. But here's the thing. When you get to that place, you just know that Jesus is going to do good for you, that he's going to lead you into more wholeness. It gets a lot easier to hand him those things, doesn't it? Any of you who've been doing this for a while, you could testify to that. It might hurt to hand him the, the wounds and the things that, that have caused you to act this way or be this way or think this way, but you trust him because you know he's good. All this happens because, as Paul says later in Romans, you are being conformed to the image of Christ. God's desire is that you would look like Jesus. But it all begins by faith in Christ. Christ. 